Approximately 2,000 years ago, the most influential person who has ever lived on this planet was born. He has graced the covers of Time magazine as the man of all time, not just as the person of the year. His name is Jesus, and the big question we want to ask today is, is he coming back to set up a kingdom that will be the real Camelot and not just some English fairy tale? Our journey through the book of Revelation brings us today to chapter 20, one of the most hotly debated sections of the entire Bible. Does John the Apostle predict that Jesus himself will return to earth and set up a literal kingdom on this planet? This is the question our study leader, Dave Wurtson, wrestles with as we join him for our study titled, Camelot, Not Just a Fairy Tale. We're going to talk today about Revelation chapter 20. It's probably one of the most controversial chapters in all the Bible. In fact, this is the passage that decides where you are theologically. If you're a theologian, you debate over this passage, whether you're amillennial, which means that you don't believe there's any millennium, there's not a literal millennium here on earth, whether you're premillennial, you believe that the coming of the Lord comes first, and then you have a thousand-year reign. And so this is a very controversial passage. But what I want you to see is that Revelation 20 speaks to a universal longing in the human heart. How many of you don't think the world today is what it really ought to be? Anybody think, as I look at the world, it's really not what it's supposed to be? You know, I'm a 60s kind of a kid. And so I can remember back in the 1960s, in fact, my kids study this in history, but I remember what it was like for Kennedy to debate Nixon. And I'll never forget when Kennedy gave his speech to a bunch of Protestant ministers and he convinced them that he believed in the separation of church and state and his Roman Catholicism would not influence the way he was president. And then he was elected because he really looked a lot better on TV than Nixon did during the debates. But I'll never forget listening to the speech. In fact, when I was in high school, we used to have a declamation contest. And every year, every single kid in our high school had to get up and give a declaration. And we'd all sit there and agonize as every student in the school got up and memorized their speech and then declared it. And the favorite speech for everybody to memorize and to give, and we probably heard it 20 times, went something like this. And it goes like this. You've all heard it. It's a very famous speech. In the long history of the world... Only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, Ask what you can do for your country. Anybody remember that speech? Any of you kids ever read about that in your history books? You know what that speech was? That speech was a speech that ignited the universal dream. Every one of you in your hearts wants to believe that there's a light that can be lit that will change the world. In fact, those days, the years of Jackie and John's reign, are called the years of Camelot. But what happened in history? Well, assassin bullets, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the breakdown of morality, a total rejection of God's moral law, generated not Camelot, but it just reenacted what happened in King Arthur's tales. Immorality, violence destroyed the kingdom. 
That's a universal condition of the human heart. And here we are, not in 1960, but now we've started the 21st century. And we're in what we call now the postmodern era. In fact, you students that are going to go away to college, some of you guys that graduate and get going here in the fall, you're going to go to university, and I guarantee you there's going to be a philosopher or an English lit teacher or one of your professors in sociology is going to get up and they're going to start to teach you like this. The universal condition of mankind is that you need to stay open to all kinds of influences. In fact, nobody really, really knows. There's no such thing as absolute truth. You see, religion, for example, let's just take religion. What you guys were raised with is nothing but the desire of the powerful to control the weak. Because this totality thinking, they'll use words like this, totality thinking and power structures. All that the religion really was, was the powerful group that was in control using their influence and their belief system to keep the weak under control and to keep them down and to keep them in their position. So all religion is just the history of power. And they'll be able to give you a lot of good evidence to show that man in reality, a lot of that is true. Religion down through history has been used by the elite powerful structures that are in place to keep the weak down. That's true. But you know the question that they're, they're not going to tell you about probably in the second university? They're not going to tell you. They're not going to tell you that everybody deep in their soul has a yearning for someone great to come, someone powerful to come. You see, every one of you hunger for a great deliverer. That's why we get on board when a young John Kennedy is able to just be such an eloquent speaker. You know, I'm going to give you the leading postmodern scholar, a man named Jacques, and he's a Frenchman, and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce his name just right, but it's a Frenchman named Derrida. Jacques Gerida, he's a Jewish guy, kind of half Jewish and half Christian, didn't circumcise his kids, but he was raised in a French home in a Christianized section of France where he was from, taught at the University of the Sorbonne in Paris for many, many years. He's the leading, probably a lot of you have never even heard of him, and yet every single day in the media and when you read magazines, you are influenced by Derrida's work. And what's really interesting is Dorit is the one that, that was the leading intellectual that tore down the idea that science has the absolute answer. And he showed how science was really just a power game and how there really isn't just absolute truth. And he, he really strongly exposed and made naked the different power structures of our society. But you know, it's really interesting that Dorita, as he writes in his writing, this is what he writes. He says this, there is a possibility that my relation to the Messiah is this. I would like him to come. This is the leading scholar of postmodernism. I would like the Messiah to come. I hope that he will come. That the other, that the other will come. The idea of the other is the one that will really know the way things should be. The one who will really know the truth. The other will come as other. For that would be what I long for, justice, peace, but it would also be revolution. Because in the concept of messianicity, and you can see the intellectualism, messianicity just means in the idea of the Messiah, there is revolution. And that's the truth of the matter. If there really is a Messiah, and he really is the embodiment of absolute love, absolute truth, absolute justice, absolute morality, then if he comes, decisions have to be made. And Dorita recognizes that. He says, because in the concept of a Messiah that's coming, there's revolution. At the same time, Dorita says, I'm scared. In fact, I do not want him to come. 
I would like the coming of the Messiah to be infinitely postponed. And I notice that this is a very strong desire in me. Now, what's Dorita saying? He's saying that there's a hunger in his human heart that he really knows that there needs to be a Messiah that will come. And I want all of our students going away to college to know that deep in the human heart, there's a tremendous desire. And people are going to debunk old-time religion. They're going to try to debunk the Bible. But if you'll listen long enough, you're going to find out that there's a hunger in their heart. Underneath it, they're longing for some great one to come. And what I want you to remember is that you were in a church family that told you that that's one of the biggest questions of all of life. That's what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation says that life is about, is there going to come a great one? Is there going to become one that will be the embodiment of love, the embodiment of justice, the embodiment of truth? And, and is there this one that will fulfill the longings of Dorita's heart? But Dorita's right. If he does come, and I would raise the issue, if he has come, then you need to decide what you're going to do with him. And you can decide either to oppose him and join the forces of wickedness, and you can hold your fist in his face, or you can get down on your knees and you can worship him. Interesting enough, in postmodernism, one of the leading ideas that Yax Derrida has is that the ultimate thing is justice, an openness to the other, an openness to your neighbor, caring for the other. He taught that, that that is even beyond just rigid rules and regulations of justice. Real justice has to do with expressing love for, your, for the other. It sounds very interesting because I know of a great Messiah that came. And he said that the ultimate principle in morality was to love his father with all of our hearts. But what did he also say? It was to love our neighbors ourselves. What I would say to Dorita is, Dorita, you live in a world where the Messiah has already come. The perfect expression of power, of justice, of love, of forgiveness has come. And incredibly, rather than using force to demand that people come to their knees and they bow before him, instead of just eliminating all of his enemies, he hung on a cross and let his enemies crucify him. Because he wanted love to be able to conquer it all. He even gave to his enemies, those that whipped him, those that beat him, those that thrust a sword into his side. He even let those enemies have another chance. And he had the Apostle Peter present the gospel, the good news that, that this was all in the plan of God and that the penalty for sin had been made. And God has even allowed 2,000 years of history to go by. And during 2,000 years, he has been sending forth. Sure, the Christian church has used power at times and illegitimately seized political control. And sure, there's been many injustices, but you can also look at church history and you can see that down through the last 2,000 years, there have been people like you who have humbly believed in their heart that Jesus was the Messiah. They humbly believed in their heart that he was God's son come in the flesh. They humbly believed in their heart that he really did stretch out his arms on Calvary for all of mankind. And they humbly believed in their heart that he really rose again from the dead. And for 2,000 years, they've been infiltrating society, trying to call people to accept the Son. What Dorita doesn't realize is that God, the ultimate being in the universe, has already sent the Messiah. Only the first time he came, just like the Old Testament predicted, he wouldn't bruise even a broken reed. And he came humbly. He grew up as a dry root. He would be unrecognized because he would come in a way that wouldn't use power to manipulate it. He wouldn't just put his elbow on our throat and make us believe. We've been living in 2,000 years of grace. 
And I want every one of you to realize what an incredible time that he is and what a wondrous time and a privilege it is for us to be able to be representatives of this Messiah of grace. As we go into all the world and we, we present God's mercy, we present his, his forgiveness, have you ever thought about how incredible it is? A murderer on death row. I have actually talked to a murderer on death row who was facing the death penalty and been able to tell that individual that, you know what, Calvary covers it all. Jesus covers it all. You can open your heart. You can say, God, I'm so sorry that I took another's life. My brutality and my violence is evil, and it, it, I'm responsible for it, and I deserve to be separated from you forever and ever and ever. But Calvary can cover it all. And the blood of Jesus Christ can take a murderous sin and make it whiter than snow. Do you believe that? You better believe that because that's what it's going to take to get all of us in. Because there's none righteous, no, not one. Have you ever thought of the incredible mercy, the incredible love? You are representatives of the Messiah that Dorit is longing for. And Dorit is right. He demands decision. But what Dorita doesn't really understand is that the first time that he came, he came as the embodiment of what he's really longing for, a justice that wouldn't just force people but would open their arms of love and get people to respond to him. But that very choice of love means you've got to make a decision. And that's what the first coming of the Messiah is all about. But you know, when you're just living in the first coming of the Messiah, you can begin to ask some really serious questions about what about the injustice in the world? What about the problems in the world? What about the fact that, that sometimes, like, even innocent children of God are just beat up? Like last week I mentioned to you, when Mary and I were up in Michigan, right when I was teaching the book of Revelation, a Chinese-Indonesian girl came up and said, do you mind if I talk to the group? And, she, and I said, sure, I'd be glad to have you. And she began to share how her own family had their houses burned. Some of her own relatives had been, had been thrown out of their jobs. They had to flee from the area of Indonesia where they lived, and they had to flee to Darwin and Australia, all because of tremendous upheavals in their culture. But some of it was a direct attack against those that really trusted in Christ. And the Christian Chinese Indonesians were all caught up in this tremendous political upheaval, and some of them were paying for it for their lives. And she was raising the issue, how can God allow this to happen? You know, my family were just believers, just like believers sitting next to you. And all we wanted to do was try to bring the gospel to our, to our Indonesian brothers and sisters. And yet God has allowed us to have our homes burned and, and some of our relatives even killed. And that raises is really tough issue. That's one thing for us to sit in what's relatively safe America and for us to say, well, man, God's mercy is so bountiful and his love is so strong. But what about when the enemy is attacking so strong? What about when the dragon's breathing down your neck and the wicked are winning? You see, that raises the issue of justice. And justice is a big issue in postmodernism. And I want all of our young people to, to hear about this here so that they don't lose their faith when they get out there. The question of justice can only be ultimately solved in Jesus. I'm going to say that again. The question of justice can only be ultimately solved in Jesus. And that's what the book of Revelation is telling you. It presents a savior to you whose eyes are like a fiery, blazing, searing light that can penetrate deep in the human heart. And he's the one that knows the absolute truth about everything. And the Old Testament promised that there was going to come a day. The Old Testament promised that there was going to come a day on earth... When there would be a perfect king 
who would execute perfect justice and the fulfillment of John Kennedy's Camelot would really come true. Where Dorita's longing for a Messiah would really take place here on earth. And what I want to do today, because to really understand Revelation 20 and why God inaugurated a thousand year reign at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus comes back and vanquishes his enemies, why did there have to be a thousand year reign on earth? Because God made some promises back in the Old Testament. God made promises to his Jewish people, the Israelite people, the sons of Abraham. He promised them that there would be a kingdom where his rule would be done on earth. His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And a lot of the American church has forgotten these precious promises that resolve this issue of what about this present history? What about God's people? And if you think this doesn't have any relevance, how do you get justice in the Holy Land? How do you decide who controls Jerusalem? How do you decide, you know, who should have the land? These are issues that history can never, never get away from. And if you're an unbeliever that hasn't quite decided about Jesus, you should study what we're going to introduce today. Because it's unbelievably profound. Who would have ever, ever guessed that you would take a country the size of New Jersey even a little bit smaller than New Jersey. And I'm from New Jersey, but New Jersey's not a big blockbuster state. And Israel's not a big blockbuster country. But for some unbelievably infinite reason, in the heart of God, he chose to choose this little land. And all of history revolves around what goes on in that little land and who really rules in Jerusalem. The first issue has to do with, that's being really touched and very and powerfully communicated in the book of Revelation is who has the right to rule. So as we begin to put together, and all we'll be able to do today is kind of put together some of the Old Testament. I want to try to paint from the Old Testament what the book of Revelation is answering. Because the Old Testament raises some issues, and then the book of Revelation answers them, and that's why there needs to be a thousand-year kingdom here on earth that fulfills these promises. The very first question that has to be answered is, who really has the right to rule? The big question in history is, who ultimately has the right to rule over the nations? Turn your Bibles to Psalm 2, because in Psalm 2 we have an ancient promise from King David. And it lays out for us who really has the right to rule ultimately over planet Earth. And you need to understand that you need to decide whether you're going to choose to join him and love him and believe in him or whether you're going to choose to shake your fist in his face. It begins in Psalm 2. It's a famous psalm. It's one of the the second hymn in the hymn book of Israel. And it begins like this. What of the nations conspire? What of the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord. And what's the next part? And against the anointed of the Lord. And the anointed of the Lord, I went through yesterday and I looked at every use of the Hebrew word anointed. The word anointed was used literally of taking some oil, a representative of God, usually a prophet, would take an oil jar and he would anoint it, pour it over the head of the one that God had chosen. The high priest was said to be anointed by the Lord and he would have to have the oil poured over him. Prophets, prophets were anointed of the Lord and they were anointed with oil and that's how their office was, was, was recognized by the community of old Israel. But the most important anointing that took place 
is an anointing you'll remember from your Sunday school stories. It was when Samuel went and anointed King Saul. The people wanted to have a king. The people wanted to have the one that God chose, but they jumped the gun in 1 Samuel, and they didn't win in the Lord. And so Samuel anointed Saul. And remember, Saul was a disaster. And the whole story of 1 Samuel is the conflict between this King Saul that was anointed by the Lord and David, who was the man after God's own heart that God had really appointed. And yet the anointed one of the Lord was so important. The fact that Saul had, been, had this oil poured on him by the prophet, that many times, even though Saul was trying to kill him, I mean, even though Saul was trying to wipe David out, David wouldn't kill him. Have you ever, I remember as a kid, man, I remember, man, I was a kid saying, man, get him, David. Wipe him out. Man, he's going to the bathroom in his cave. Cut him down. Just cut him in half. Anybody agree with me? Man, go get him. That's the way I am. And yet David has a totally different heart. He, he restrains his mighty men and says, no, don't touch the hand of the Lord's anointed. David was siding with the Lord's anointed. He chose to join with him. In fact, when someone came, after Saul was killed on a battlefield, one of Saul's servants came running to David, who was living in exile, and says, David, Saul is dead, and I killed him. And he thought that David would give him a great big reward. Instead, David turned to one of his mighty men and said, cut him down. Because he had the audacity of putting his hand against the Lord's anointing. The Old Testament stresses how important it is, the Lord's anointed king. And what it's telling us is in Psalm 2 is that ultimately, King David, who revealed this heart that was so focused on God's kingdom and God's rule and was so concerned about doing justice and kindness and joining with God's anointed, even when God's anointed turned out to be a maniac and crazy, David let God remove him and then David was initiated into that kingdom. And what Psalm 2 is about is how the nations stand in intense opposition to the Lord and his anointed. Now the question that's raised, can the anointed one handle it? Can the king of kings handle it? Sometimes I ask that question. As we live in our world today, one of the things you need to know is that if you're going to join with King Jesus, if you're going to believe in him, if you're going to love him, then you need to realize that you're going to have those that conspire against you. Those that try to, come, that try to defeat you. That try to hold that down. You're, you're not just going to be in a nice, peaceful universe. Psalm 2 is telling us that when God has his king and his anointed, there will be those that conspire against him. In fact, the, the book of Acts interprets this psalm to deal when Jesus was facing judgment by Pilate and King Herod. The king of this world, according to the book of Acts, were Pilate and King Herod. And they conspired together against the Lord and against his anointed. And in the crucifixion, it looked like they had won a great victory. But, but the early church interpreted Psalm 2 to be telling, no, because it says here, the one enthroned in the heaven. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And what the Lord Jesus did when he rose again from the dead, he was installed on the throne of the ultimate kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And that's part of where we're living right now. You see, in the real kingdom that's going to last forever and ever, 
our Savior, according to the book of Acts, and according to many other passages in Paul, the Lord Jesus has already been placed in the ultimate throttle room of the universe. But the book of Hebrews says that right now we don't see all things subjected to him. So though in the spiritual realm, our Savior has won the victory. And that's why you're safe. If you receive Jesus, you're safe. You can be confident. You're going to be safe eternally. The dragon can't overcome you. Revelation 12, when we studied it, said that when the dragon tried to snuff out the child, that God took him and snatched him to be with himself and took him away from the clutches of the dragon and installed him in the position of ruling. That's what Psalm 2, that's one of the applications of Psalm 2. Revelation is also telling us that presently on earth and culminating during the tribulation period, there's still a tremendous conflict. There's still tremendous opposition. And what Psalm 2 is reminding us of who the true king is, and ultimately we can be sure that their animosity against those that follow Christ, their persecution against those that follow Christ, whatever we might face from the unbelieving world, is not going to be able to win. That eventually, the Lord God in the heaven laughs at the audacity of his creatures trying to have any kind of an opposition against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Lord responds to this tremendous counterattack against his anointed one by saying, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, the Lord God said to me, the son of David, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, now look at this, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possessions. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now, what is the promise here? Ask of me. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. I want you to realize that right now, we are to go into all the world and call the nations by faith to respond to the Savior. That's the fulfillment of go and make disciples of every people group. And that's what I talked about earlier in our talk today about the age of grace. Ask of me and I'll give the nature of the inheritance. It's the heart of God for there to be those in his family from every tribe and people group and nation. Everybody on planet earth should have the opportunity of hearing about this precious son. And that's one of the applications. It's really the New Testament thrust of the bride of Christ. But what's often forgotten, for example, my amillennial friends will hold that the church is going to keep fulfilling the Great Commission. Some of them hold that it's going, to gen- it's going to be such a powerful influence that it will generate a kingdom of light, and then Jesus will come as kind of the culminating picture of this angel of light. Of angel of light. The problem with that view is that there's another side to Psalm 2 that says he's going to rule them with an iron scepter. And the picture there is not of grace and mercy. It's what we've been having in the book of Revelation. Like when I taught you last week, I showed you a white horseman, a great conquering general that came with absolute power. And that's what Dorita is afraid of. And what I tried to get you to think last week, and I want you to continue to think of of this, because it's very hard for us in postmodern America to understand that there is absolute justice. And absolute justice means that if you choose wickedness, like if you choose to sin, 
If you choose to reject God's mercy, you choose to join the enemy, you choose to conspire against the Lord and his anointed, I've told you about an ultimate king that will pardon, that will forget, that will let you become his child, miraculously. If you say no, like Doritos says, I don't want the Messiah to come, because if the Messiah comes, then I'm not in control anymore. I'm going to say that again, because it's the ultimate issue of modern man. You see, if the Messiah has come, and if the Messiah does come in the future, then you can't be in control anymore. You can't sit in your classroom and tear down all the other systems and be God on earth that knows what real justice is. You can't decide what morality is going to be. You can't decide what you're going to do with your life just in your own strength. You can't be the God of yourself and of your universe. Because if there's one who's absolutely God, who's absolutely just, who's absolutely loving, who's absolutely peace and mercy and all those things, if there really is this ultimate Messiah, and if he comes, you've got to decide. You either join up with him, and you bow before him, and you let him hug you to, to himself, and you become one of his devoted followers, and you're willing to give him everything, or you walk away from him, and you shake your fist in his face. And I want you to know as I grow older... When I was younger, I used to think there was large middle ground. And I used to feel like, man, you know, Jesus, what does he have to do with school? And when I'm in Maplewood, New Jersey, playing Little League Baseball, and that's so far removed away from my little tiny church, my little Plymouth Brethren church that only had about 75 people in it. I used to feel like what my dad does is such a small representative thing. But, you know, I was dead wrong as a little kid. Because as I've grown older, I've never, never, never been able to get away from the Jesus question. And I've read page after page after page of Jewish literature. And I've read the rabbis, and I've read German philosophy. You know what? When I read German philosophy, when I read Jewish rabbis, when I read Derrida, incredibly, you know who keeps coming up? When I read Nietzsche, who's the, one of the most brilliant German narrative writers that totally rejected Jesus. You know when I read Nietzsche, you know who I read about? Jesus. I can't get away from Jesus. He's always showing up. And you know what I find is? People either are devoted to him, and they're in love with him, and they're praising him, and their lives are being transformed by him, or they're cursing him, and they're denying him, and they're rebelling against him, and they're angry with him, and they're fighting him. And I want to tell you something. You know what? That's true of every one of your hearts. You know, there's a part of me that says, well, God, that isn't fair. I mean, you tell me that Jesus is going to come and he's going to crush his enemies. I don't believe that that's right. Yes, it is right. If there really is wickedness, that's, what I, that's why I used Hitler, because all of you agree with me last week when I told you that Hitler needed to be crushed and we needed the allies to attack. When you face ultimate embodiment of evil, then suddenly you'll all agree with me he should be eliminated. What you won't agree with me about is there has to be justice in Dave Wordson's heart and in your heart. And the evil has to be dealt with. And that's why there's a cross. But I also want you to know that the teaching of the New Testament, according to Psalm 2, there's not only a merciful Savior that says and go and make disciples of every nation, but the book of Revelation is telling us that history is going to culminate with a great king coming back. And I want every one of you to know that every injustice that was ever done to you Every time you ever mocked for Jesus, any time that somebody cursed you because of Jesus, any time that Jesus' moral standards were laughed at and abused and mocked, any time that some of his children were taken and they were persecuted, the great king says that those that, that did those acts against him and his people, 
He says if that is not put under the blood of Jesus, then it is going to be dealt with with an omnipotent, powerful strength and justice. Do you understand that? In the United States of America, we have an idea that Jesus is just a really nice, sweet Mr. Rogers, as I often say to you. And you're not going to know Jesus if that's the only Jesus you have. Psalm 2 speaks about a Jesus who is incredibly powerful. And this is the Jesus that comes back in Revelation chapter 20 to institute his kingdom. The conclusion of Psalm 2 goes like this. Therefore, you kings, be wise. All the political leaders on the earth, be wise. I want you to be warned, you rulers of the earth. You should serve the Lord, the ultimate creator God, with reverence. The covenant God of Israel, you should serve him with reverence. You should rejoice with trembling. You see the reverence for this great mighty leader? It says, kiss the sun. And the idea of kissing the sun means show your love, your devotion to the sun, lest he be angry and you'd be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed are those who take refuge in him. And that's the big contrast that I've been sharing with you. You see, when the Messiah shows up, you've got to decide. What the book of Revelation is saying is, when he shows up at the end of the tribulation period... He shows up to use his rod of iron and all those who have not reverenced him, all those who have not expressed their love for him kissing the sun, to all those who have not trusted in him, then they will be faced with absolute justice, absolute law, the one who embodies everything that's right. And because they chose wickedness, they will have to be condemned. Now, that's not very acceptable in the modern world, in the postmodern world, but it's the truth. And I want you to know that Dave Wirtz is just with you. I have to bow before this great Savior. Wouldn't you love to have a world where your little toddlers could have a pet of a cobra? You could go out in the backyard and they'd have a cobra winding around their body and there'd be no danger. And then they would reach over and they'd pet a great big tiger. And they'd reach over and yell at their, their pet leopard. And then they have a wolf, and they're all playing in the backyard, and a lion eats straw. Where we take all of our military weapons, and we just make them into farming equipment. Does that sound familiar? Anybody ever heard those kind of dreams? That's the Old Testament prophetic dream. In fact, to read it talks about longing for that kind of a world. The book of Isaiah said that there's going to come a king that's going to set up a kingdom on planet Earth, where you're not going to need nuclear weapons, you're not going to need automatic weapons, all you're going to need is farm supplies, and it also tells us that the farmers, your land will just explode with productivity. We're going to look at the Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah, and then the book of Daniel and Zechariah, and then we'll show how it all culminates in Revelation 20, because though it's a little short paragraph, Revelation chapter 20 is when it happens for us. It's when we come riding with the great white horsemen and we rule and reign and join with the Old Testament saints and for a thousand years the Lord is going to show us what it would be like for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you of all people, as you go out this week, what I want to motivate you to do, man, you, like I remember when my young friends got excited about Kennedy, my friends, would, they went to the middle. They went to the Midwest. They went to California. They got excited about this, this Camelot dream. And then I watched them crash and burn in cynicism as it all came crashing down. But you know what? 
Some of my other friends back in 1960, some of them even hippies, drug abusers, a million other things, some of them met King Jesus right in 1960, right in those early days of Camelot. Some of them, rather than just pouring themselves in to this human utopia, they found this ultimate king. And you know what? Incredibly, now they're 65. Some of them were a little bit older. You know what? They're writing me emails. They're calling me. You know what they're telling me? They're telling me, man, this great king, this great Jesus, is just as full of justice, just as full of joy, just as full of power. He's still meeting my needs, and he's still the answer for the world. Brothers and sisters, I want us to think razor sharp. I want us to think clearly about which side we're going to be on. I want us to make no compromise with the evil side. I want you to pray for me, and I'm going to pray for you. I want you to capture a vision of King Jesus, a biblical, real, true image of King Jesus. Because his millennial kingdom is coming. There's going to be a thousand years where you're going to be ruling and reigning with him right here on this planet. But now this week, we can go out during this time of grace, and we can be giving this incredible message of forgiveness inviting people to come to the king so that they can join us in that incredible thousand-year celebration that's going to usher in eternity. The thousand years is just the, the, the doorway into forever and ever we're going to be with the Lord. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I want to ask you specifically that you would use what I shared today to inoculate some of my young brothers and sisters that are going to hear about deconstructionism. And they're going to have spiritual faith torn down. I just ask you, Lord, that maybe something that we talked about today from Psalm 2 and from Revelation 20 would grip their hearts and cause them to really recommit themselves to the real King Jesus. I'd ask you, Lord, that just none of our young people that go away to university would wander away from the precious strength and love and healing forgiveness of King Jesus. Help them to realize that they can find it as they grow older. Help them with all of their hearts to remember that today they learned that King Jesus will never let them down. That he's the one that will one day usher them into eternity. And he's the one that they need to let hug them to his side and be in love with him forever and ever and ever. I want to pray for some businessmen and women today. As they go into the power structures of our present world system, I'd ask you, Lord, that they would let King Jesus be in control of their business life. The ethics by which they do business, the choices that they make. I'd ask you that in our family lives that you would really protect us, Lord. There's some men here today that are depressed. I know one of the things that I wrestle with in, in being at the age where I am now, you look back over your life and you can wonder, like, what in the world have I accomplished and was it worth it? And there can be great, great waves of, of helplessness and the fear of growing older. And as men, we don't often talk about these things. But Lord, what we talk about today is, a, is an answer to that. Jesus promised us, King Jesus promised us that, man, this, this earthly life is just the warm-up. It's just the training school. If we really know King Jesus, then we're going to come riding with him. And we're going to be at his side. We're going to be his intimate associates, his family, his brothers and sisters in this, in this kingdom, this thousand-year reign, and then the eternal kingdom. So we don't have to feel 
that life is running out. We can feel that it's only just begun. Oh, Lord, I would pray that by your powerful spirit that you would lift some of my precious brothers up from depression. Lift some of my sisters up from depression by really committing themselves to the wonder of your millennial kingdom, the joy of your coming, to the fact of your coming. I'd ask you, Lord, in closing, that you would help us to be razor sharp on the choices that need to be made, whether it's a Frenchman like Dorita or whether it's a person living in China under communism or in Indonesia, help us to realize that King Jesus is the king of the nations and that there's not going to be peace on earth until every people group on planet earth is bowing before him. We thank you, Lord, for the precious privilege of not going with the sword today, but going with the written word, the written promise the blessed gospel of Christ. Lord, I want to pray that you would make this teaching clear, the difference between this age of grace where we go with the word of promise, with the word of forgiveness, with the word of promise, and the age of judgment when Jesus comes and executes his penalty against evil. Help us to be clear on that and help that to give us patience as we live today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I believe that this is an extremely important message for the situation we face in the world today. Extreme Islam, with its suicide bombers, wants to conquer the world. Our government has the biblical responsibility to protect us, but as armies march victorious, we need to beware of arrogance and of greed. We must be careful not to believe that we rule the world and bring about peace in our time by the might of our economy or of our armies. Only the perfect, just, God-man, Jesus, has the right to sit on the throne of the world. Until he returns, we must humbly accept that there will be wars and rumors of wars, and we must at times use force to protect the innocent from international criminals. But we must not fall to the seduction of our own invincibility and righteousness. The state in this age of grace must accept its responsibility to resist evil, but resist the passion to set up a human worldwide kingdom. As believers in Jesus, it is important for us to use this time of grace to proclaim the message of forgiveness in the crucified, risen Savior before he returns in might and glory. I pray that the Lord has used this study, Camelot, more than a fairy tale, to help you discover that only the ruler with nail prints in his hands and his feet has the right to set up his rule over all the earth.